0: Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. I hope Everyone's doing well um, in this tough time. I think uh, this episode will, will help. Well, today I'm excited to talk with a very special guest, Duncan Ryukin Williams, the author of American Sutra, A Story of Faith and Freedom in the Second World War. Duncan is an ordained priest in the uh, Soto Zen tradition. He is a scholar of Buddhism, and uh, taught at the University of California at Berkeley and Irvine and at Trinity College. He is now the director of the Shinso Ito Center for Japanese Religions and Culture at the University of Southern California. He has published nine other books, including The Other Side of Zen. He has also become more involved with and, and leads efforts in um, uh, uh, a social justice movement called Suru for Solidarity. Suru is a Japanese word meaning crane. And um, one of the things you see them doing is uh, folding using uh, origami or folding paper cranes and placing them on the fences of the ICE detention centers uh, in, uh, in an effort to um, make more visible uh, uh, internment of the other. Um, and and that's, that's one of the things that ties both today um, and, and the troubles we have today with um, social justice, uh, racial injustice, Uh, religious injustice in our country, and the injustices um, that were met on Japanese-American Buddhists during the Second World War. His book, American Sutra, chronicles the mass incarceration of Japanese-Americans during World War II, beginning with the FBI rounding up leaders of Japanese-American communities, um, with Buddhist priests among the first to be incarcerated, starting on Pearl Harbor Day. The book tells a story of Japanese American Buddhists who were the largest group of Buddhists in the United States at that time, and in the context of anti-Japanese sentiment during World War II. And it, like I referenced just a minute ago, it draws parallels to contemporary challenges to religious freedoms facing uh, Americans today and those that are trying to immigrate here or, or uh, uh, be, be, uh, escape to America uh, to become Americans from violence in the countries from where they're escaping. Uh, Williams conducted bilingual research, including translating four volumes of diaries written by a Buddhist priest incarcerated at a high security camp in Santa Fe, New Mexico, from 1941 to 1945, and he obtained and declassified FBI documents indicating that about 300 priests were picked up by the FBI after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Duncan Williams dug deep in his research with the use of bilingual sources enabling a uniquely Buddhist perspective of the Japanese-American soldiers who served in the 100th Battalion, 442nd Regimental Combat Team, and the Military Intelligence Service during World War II. You know, I reached out to a Duncan, to invite him as a guest on the podcast when his book first came out. That was a little over a year ago. Um, and through differing circumstances, mostly on my part, but he, he I, he was very busy and I didn't want to interrupt his um, book publication and traveling schedule. But now we have a found found a day to get together. And I've been excited about our conversation since a little over a year ago. Um, until now. Um, so listen in as we talk, we, we really uh, talk a lot about what it means to be an American. Um, what does racial and religious freedom mean in America? Um, what it, thinking about identity, who are we as Americans? Um, and we also get into Buddhist faith, interconnectedness, having hope, and keeping practice despite challenging life circumstances, and with where we all find ourselves today in the pandemic, this is this is a message for our times. You know, um, he he, we talk a lot about how imprisonment became an opportunity to discover freedom. And thinking about that from our Buddhist perspective, imprisonment becoming an opportunity to discover freedom, it is, I think, it shines a light on where we find ourselves today. Instead of saying, oh, I wish we could go back to normal, Um, I wish I could do this, I wish I could do that, maybe in our quote-unquote imprisonment, in the fact that we are um, somewhat interned in our own homes, yet we're totally together. We're interconnected with everyone else across the world. But is is that, uh, that, you know, in-home, stay-home, stay-safe internment that we're all living through today, is that our personal opportunity to discover freedom? Is that our personal opportunity to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And is the the challenging circumstance we find ourselves in today, is that sort of the nutrients of the muddy water that will enable us for our own lotus to bloom? Or for the lotus of a new way to see the world? These are some of the themes we touched on today. I'll leave it at that and let you and and uh, just get on with the episode. And before I do, I'll just say, gee, I hope we're all doing okay, and I'm glad you could join me for this podcast episode. And I think it'll make you feel a lot better about where you are now. Well, welcome to the Everyday Buddhism Podcast, Duncan. I am honored to have you join me for a conversation.
1: Well, um, wonderful to join you today.
0: Um, for those of you, who, this is you know, not going to be released into the wild until after it's uh, edited. But um, as an FYI, we are recording this on April 8th which is Hanamatsuri, or Flower Festival, the celebration of the Buddha's birthday in Japan. I I had originally had another thought for starting a conversation with Duncan today. Um, That was prior to the intensification of the pandemic sweeping the globe, but I think these times call for hope. And traditionally, Hanamatsuri celebrations feature small houses made of flowers with miniature Buddha statue placed inside and then people sprinkle it with a sweet tea. But it's also a celebration of spring occurring when the cherry blossoms are blooming blooming throughout Japan. So the celebrations um, also include people offering flowers to the little tiny Buddha Um, So, celebrating the Buddha's birth at this time where flowers are blooming and trees are budding, even here for for me in um, upstate New York, Rochester, New York, it gives us hope, and especially now in these otherwise dark and frightening times. So, Duncan, in your book, you tell stories of how the imprisoned Japanese American Buddhist priests and families found ways to still celebrate. Hanamatsuri, despite lacking the resources they normally would have had because of being interned in the camps. So if you could, if you don't mind, tell one of those stories and maybe say a few words of how, a few uh, Buddhist teacher, Buddhist priest-like words of how we might draw hope from the continuation of faith these stories illustrate, and how we too can find ways to keep the faith and find freedom in our own global, quote-unquote, internment in our homes due to the pandemic. you,
1: sure. you could do that. I, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, so uh, in my book, American Sutra, uh, I, I mention how Buddhist priests uh, in particular were targeted um, right after uh, the Pearl Harbor attack And how people were picked up uh, and incarcerated. uh, Totally, I think over one hundred and twenty-five thousand persons of Japanese ancestry incarcerated during uh, World War II because of their race and because of their religion. And one of the stories I focus on is Hanamatsuri, or the Buddha's birthday, the flower festival. Literally in Japanese, Uh, it comes, of course, from the legend of you know. Uh, When the Buddha was born, the heavens were apparently so happy that it rained sweet rain and flowers. And so that's why, as you mentioned, there is a ritual of pouring sweet tea on a small baby Buddha statue inside of a shrine that's covered with flowers and so forth. And in these camps, they didn't have uh, very much in the way of, you know, ritual equipment that we normally have. Uh, And so they tried to make do with what was available. And so they made some flowers out of the toilet paper uh, that they uh, dyed with some beets from the mess hall. Uh, They Mm -hmm. made, uh, didn't have sweet tea, but they made uh, a sweet coffee type drink using rationed sugar and coffee uh, that they had available. And in one camp, uh, one of the young men uh, went to the mess hall and found the largest carrot that he could find and carved a baby Buddha statue that way. And so they poured wow. sweet uh, coffee onto the carrot Buddha. So this is the kind of uh, ingenuity that people had to come up with to be able to, in some sense, you know, Hanamatsuri or the Buddha's birthday is an occasion for us not only to recall the historic, you know, birth of the Buddha, but to kind of renew our buddhist faith uh uh in the annual cycle of 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 our of our ceremonies and so it, it's a way in which sometimes you know in confinement in a place where freedom is not uh uh available uh, uh or material things are not as freely uh, uh available we find you know uh creative ways to continue our faith and continue, uh, uh, you know, our, 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 our Buddhist practice, uh, in, in, in the midst of, uh, various kinds of confinement.
0: Yes. Th- and thank you. That's just, uh, in reflecting back on those stories, that's sort of how I felt, you know, it was like, um, um, you if you it's like when you read a book in one circumstance and then you pick it up again in another circumstance right. it sort of speaks to you totally differently and in reviewing what i had read and sort of reading it again before this podcast it, everything took on sort of a different light for me in light of the pandemic so um thank you for for uh, sharing that story um and as I mentioned in the introduction to uh, Duncan and the book he wrote, American Sutra, um, the book draws parallels to contemporary issues um, today, not not just in internment in our homes, but major um, issues of social injustice and racial injustice, especially along the divisive and challenging times uh, we are living today. You know, we we are facing similar um, since the current administration. I would say issues around racial injustice, civil liberties, and religious freedom. And the book shines a light on our country's shameful past, with obviously what Duncan just referred to earlier, with the incarceration of more than hundred thousand Japanese Americans during World War II. Yet. This behavior is not only in America's past, as is evidenced by the recent incarceration of Latin American families and children escaping uh, uh, and then being locked up. (laughs) What struck me most about your book is how you provided an intimate look into the very real people and the real feelings and thoughts they had due to the situations they faced both the Japanese Americans and others who tried to help them. And as you point out in the prologue of your book, um, the story of the Japanese Americans' mass incarceration is largely forgotten by our religious and cultural history. And, you know, personally, as someone, I was born in 1953 mm. in, uh, in the Cleveland, Akron, Ohio, era, and Ohio area. And, you know, I don't even remember... Um, knowing the story much or being discussed too much in our high school history books. And I distinctly remember the first time it hit me that something like this happened in our history. I worked with a Japanese-American woman my age who told me the story of her parents' plight as both they were both incarcerated. And it was as if I couldn't believe it as I listened to the horrible things that she related from her parents' experience. I mean, I remember thinking, this can't be true. And then this was years ago when I was in my 20s, and you know, now I'm in my <laughs> 60s, and um, I, I, my eyes were wide open. So you made a particular point of the fact that, as you wrote, quote, Japanese American Buddhists have been excluded from the narrative of American belonging, it is perhaps not surprising that their stories are not readily found in most histories of that time, unquote. But in your research and writing, you were able to tell those stories from the inside out, which is what I was so struck by. And that makes it possible for us to understand how the faith of these Buddhists gave them, you know, as you said, purpose and meaning at a time of loss, Uncertainty, dislocation, and deep questioning of their place in the world, and as so you you so perfectly summarized it quote their religious faith may have uh, might have contributed to their loss of freedom, but it was also indispensable to their at- attempts to endure that loss. So after that too long um, reflection, I'd like to address two points. <laughs> First, why is it, you think, that Japanese American Buddhists have been excluded from this narrative American, of American belonging? Is it, you know, like Orientalism? Is it shame? Is it the reluctance of Japanese Americans to tell their stories? What do you think? You know, um,
1: the, uh, there's kind of different layers, I think, of how and why. This particular story uh, is not as well known. Um, I think, as you mentioned, you know, uh, out in the Midwest or the South or the East Coast, certainly um, the story of what happened to you know 125,000 or so persons of Japanese ancestry suddenly being put into these uh, confinement sites, internment camps, and so forth, uh, is just not probably as well known uh, a story as um, the West Coast. Uh, So it's just not part of the national uh, kind of uh, story of what happened during World War II, Uh, despite the fact that, you know, two thirds of these people were American citizens. And you usually think like before you put people behind barbed wire uh, with armed guards, you're supposed to have committed some kind of crime and you're supposed to have some kind of due process. you know, where you're found guilty of some crime by a jury of your peers. Um, And, you know, I've always found that uh, it's quite extraordinary what happened back then. If you think about little babies, um, children from orphanages being rounded up, uh, infirm grandmothers being rounded up, um, uh, you know, for they haven't committed a crime or it's just because of their race and their religion that they were seen as un-American, if not anti-American. And so I think, you know, uh, part of it is, is, uh, uh, the kind of a failure to recognize, uh, how some of those kind of themes about exclusion, whether it comes from race or whether it comes from religion. And I think today you mentioned, you know, how those themes continue on today. You know, they, for Asian American people, I think, you know, you can see it going back as far as the Chinese Exclusion Act of right. 1881 and 1882, that, that, that period where the first federal immigration law that said a certain group of people because of their race are not welcome in America. That was the first time America kind of put a kind of symbolic wall up, a border up that, that said, Some people are welcome and other people are not. And it was the Chinese that bore the brunt of that first kind of exclusion. So starting from there and through the World War II uh, mass incarceration of Japanese Americans, I think we can see how sometimes, you know, back then they were talking about the heathen Chini, these Mm non-Christian Asian people as being a kind of un-American kind of threat to American uh, kind of, identity as well as security. And I think you hear that kind of echoes of that kind of language, whether it's travel bans that target a particular religion like Muslims or border walls on the southern border, as you mentioned, to exclude people, you know, from Central America or Mexico who's seeking uh, asylum. Uh, uh, This kind of uh, language, unfortunately, seems to come back uh, again and again uh, in American life and so I think part of it is that uh, We go through these periods where we have some amnesia and we <laughs> we, we forget about these uh, Moments when you know a group of citizens in this case uh, as well as uh, uh, their parents uh, were rounded up for no uh, 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 You know crime into these camps back in World War II. So I think these are, the, I think it's, it's got to do with um, uh, this longstanding thematic, but one where we go through these periods of amnesia. And, you know, I think for Japanese Americans, uh, while there have been many efforts to try to, from their, uh, you know, family histories and life, life stories and trying to tell their stories, uh, uh, sometimes being Ignore. I think part of it is also, uh, you know, I think parents sometimes to look after their children and their or the next generations uh, to try not to pass on trauma. Uh, ah. uh, sometimes they I think I'm trying to shield their kids and grandkids, you know, from what happened uh, ah. so that uh, they don't want them to go through it. So I think sometimes there's been some silences even within uh, the japanese American community, and f- the final point I would make is that you know there's this very strong idea this again a very long standing one that America is essentially a white and Christian nation, and that people who don 't belong in those categories are somehow kind of marginalized or excluded completely and I think among japanese Americans to try to try to tell this story, they often you know uh, centered. Japanese American Christians, uh, even though they were a minority within the community as the kind of central figures in the telling of the story. And Buddhists kind of got left out, even though they constituted the vast majority of the 125,000 people who were incarcerated. And so there's all these different layers of, I think, reasons why the story is less well known
0: yeah what you pointed out well first of all I I was really struck by what you just said about uh, why it wasn't passed on because my experience with uh, working with uh, Japanese American Buddhists is it it is a pretty quiet quiet thing they don't talk about it much even if they were in the camps Um, and and I've often wondered about it but that makes sense not passing on the trauma um and the other thing that you said that i really like is about the layering because if we are you know i I think even though we don't say that that's how it is that we we're supposedly the land of the free and uh the opening our doors to any any race any nationality any creed um but at as as you so rightly pointed out, it's a, it's, it's really a, a white Christian nation. And so why, you know, they, why didn't they round, uh, round up the Germans and the Italians? Well, that was because they looked white, right? And, um, but the, but the point you made about the Buddhist part of it is I guess they had one, one part of the equation, right? They were Christ, the, the ones that weren't that were Christian and Japanese Americans, then then they had one one thing going for them. They were Christian, right? Right, <laughs>
1: right. So you know, with the World War II incarceration, there's two parts: the initial roundup of uh, you know thousands of people who were the community leaders, and then there's a mass incarceration that happens in the spring of 1942, uh, where the entire West Coast. Uh, they find anybody with a single, they call it a single drop of Japanese blood in them. They were uh, all put in camp. Right. And so the initial phase, they targeted Buddhist uh, clergy um, and Shinto uh, priests, um, but not Christian ministers, uh, because they believed that they could make that distinction between you know, different levels of national security threat. And at that time, Buddhists were considered in, 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 as a, category of person a threat to national security and so um there was that distinction but then you know religion mattered in that moment and then in the mass incarceration though you know as i mentioned it could be little babies and infirm grandmothers didn't matter if you're buddhist or christian like race uh that drop of japanese blood, blood that's what that's what um uh marked you uh to 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 be uh you know uh, a threat to national security. And so that was the distinction between what happened to the Japanese and the Italian American or German American community. They also had their leaders who were considered threats to national security uh, rounded up. Um, but uh, there was no mass incarceration of all German Americans or all Italian Americans. Uh, it was just not seen as a community that was threatening in that general way.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that brings me to the second point or question I had about, um, the Buddhist aspect of it, you know, uh, um, which is, 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 is unique, except not so unique. Now, if we look at the, like you said, like you mentioned the travel ban, you know, against Muslims. Um, but the, 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 the question of American Buddhist perspective to be precise is that I have is um, you had the chapter on the resettlement of the imprisoned Japanese American Buddhists. And that was so fascinating. Um, But there was that continued threat that you brought up uh, of vandalism, violence, and neighborhood exclusion by Americans on the West coast who still had that suspicion that was carried over of the Japanese Americans as like, "Quote unquote," the other right, right, um, and the push pull among the Japanese Americans themselves. So that that was the inter- another interesting thing you pr- brought out in the book is that many many Japanese Americans wanted to continue the um, sort of the Americanization of their culture and religion, while many Buddhist priests fought the fact that the Japanese didn't like win the war and they eventually wanted to be repatriated to Japan, but. The thing that uh, that I uh, the question I have or the next concept I have is the resettlement of thousands of Japanese American Buddhists to the midwest east Coast and you know other places ended up really being the foundation for a post war American Buddhism that crossed ethnic and sectarian sectarian divisions which is sort of like uh it made that um, it made that uh sutra that uh uh, parting sutra at the beginning of the book um, sort of like uh, uh, sort of like prophetic because it, he he talks about how he will set up, um, he will teach it. I mean, he will, you know, learn Buddhism with the other, other faces um, from, from wherever he is. And that's, that's the thing that I like that you brought up is because what I would like to talk more about is how you view the Americanization that is so obvious in the Buddhist churches of America and other temples and sanghas that grew from the efforts of those who moved eastwards from the camps. The, sure. the, re- the reason I bring this up, and I'll just put a, just a little aside here, is that um, I come from, I'm a teacher and lay minister with the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, and one we we were formed from one of the very traditions started by the buddhist leaders who live in the camps. so reverend yome kabose sensei was in in uh, imprisoned and and his his the lineage was continued by his son reverend koyo kabose and our lineage is actually one centered on american buddhism and actually the name was bright dawn center for american buddhism until relatively recently And what I see is this thread that they, that the people in the camps had about trying to blend in or make themselves more, um, you know, more American, if you will, without like dumbing down or watering down or diluting their own ethnic heritage or religion. What I see, that thread came through our lineage, and we were taught to bring Buddhism to the people wherever they were. And so I see the sprouting of that and what you write about throughout the book. You, you talked about how hard the Japanese American Buddhists try to celebrate and participate in what was American. And one of the stories you shared, and I'll just quote it and then have you uh, uh, reflect on this a little bit. Um, there was a, you, you wrote a story about, you took it from one of the priest's diaries and he reflected on Christmas and he wrote, if Buddhism is going to spread throughout the world, Buddhist events should be placed into each country's folk customs. Although December 8th is designated as the day of the Buddha's entrance into Nirvana or um, Bodhi Day here in America, it doesn't, if it doesn't fall on a Sunday, we really can't do anything major, he wrote. So he thought, he said we should celebrate it on Christmas at every temple, and the Bodhi tree could take the place of the Christmas tree. So, from my perspective, it's this this sort of Americanization um, and of Buddhism. Uh, still, it's another one of those things that is is overlooked um, in the histories of Buddhism in America, and one of the, I think, more overlooked ways of Buddhist practice. The Americans seem to be strangely, this is like a dichotomy. Americans seem seem mesmerized by the romantic notion of like Buddhism through a more cultural lens, like Tibetan Buddhism. And that's the interesting paradox where the other becomes the one you seek for spiritual refuge. Yet when Americanized Japanese Buddhism becomes sort of second class until maybe more recently. So how do you personally view that sort of Americanization of Buddhism um, it's evolution and how you see it now. And especially I'm thinking in the forms of say Japanese Buddhism, like Pure Land, Jodo Shinsu, Nichiren, and so forth, compared to sort of the um, excitement around Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Sure. Um, well, as a general uh, concept, I, I, one of the chapters in the book um Uh, features this idea of, uh, uh, I I think it's it's a chapter called Reinventing American Buddhism. Right. And I I use this word adaptation or adapting, but uh, it comes from the Japanese Buddhist word hobeng, or in Sanskrit, upaya. I think generally translates skillful means, but Mm -hmm. I translate skillful adaptation. But the idea is that you know, when Buddhism in its 2,500 year history moves from one cultural context to another, it has to skillfully adapt to that cultural zone, uh, taking into consideration some of the uh, social norms, uh, uh, church-state relationships, uh, and so forth. And that's always been the case uh, for Buddhism in its long history. And that's one of the reasons why it has this long history is because it's been able to survive and adapt to different different situations. Obviously, the in, the insides of a concentration camp is a different kind of survival and adaptation moment. But as a general principle, the idea of uh, Americanizing uh, Buddhism uh, is something that, of course, was happening, you know, in the decades prior to. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Japanese forms and lineages of Buddhism, such as you mentioned, Shingon Nichiren, Jodo Shu, Jodo Shinshu, Soto Zen, and so forth. They've been in America for almost seven decades by the time Pearl Harbor hit. And so there have already been moves and directions uh, of Americanizing. um, But uh, obviously the war and putting camps accelerated that process. And what do I mean by that process? I think it's always been that whenever you know Indian Buddhism went to Tibet or Chinese Buddhism went to Japan, or whenever there's a movement of Buddhism from one cultural context to another, two things are happening simultaneously as part of that adaptation. On the one hand, you find ways in which, um, as I was saying, kind of like there's a adaptation, a mimicking a a way of kind of trying to uh, transform some of the uh, practices and rituals and even doctrine of Buddhism to fit the place. Mm-hmm. And so you see, as you mentioned, one of the big organizations of the Jodo Shinshu group, of uh, the Nishi Honganji tradition, they, during the camp days in one of the camp in Topaz uh, in Utah, they actually formally legally changed their name from the Buddhist mission of North America to the Buddhist churches of America Mm -hmm. Uh, and that idea of kind of using the language and mimicking the language that would be more familiar to greater number of people about churches um, talking about the Buddhist priests as ministers and so on and so forth. Um, You mentioned, you know, uh, what was it, Buddhismus and the kind of, uh, kind of like uh, putting, putting uh, Buddhist holidays uh, in (laughs) line with, with the kind of like calendrical traditions uh, at large. Um, uh, in, uh, that's more familiar in America. Um, I think some of those move- movements, uh, like, for example, congregationalism, I think is one of the key features of American Buddhism. The idea of, of, of on a particular day, you know, uh, Muslims meets on Fridays or Jews on Saturdays and Christians on Sundays have kind of like having a designated day for congregation mm-hmm. at, the, at, the, at the temple. Uh, that was already starting to happen prior to World War II uh, as a form of Americanizing, you know, the idea of kind of copying this idea of congregating because back in Japan, you know, Buddhists didn't necessarily have a kind of day of the week that they always got together. Mm-hmm. It was much more episodic and periodic. Uh, there was a ritual calendar, but it wasn't like you designated Sunday as the day to do that. So that kind of thing of designating a congregation day, um, I think was already in progress prior to the war, it got heightened uh, and quickened by what happened during the war. But these, well, there's one last thing I'd like to mention, which is that, I, m- I mentioned that whenever it moves, Buddhism moves from one cultural context to another, it's not just that it adapts to pre-existing norms of social and religious uh, culture, but that it also, you know, contributes something new to that culture itself Mm. and changes the culture uh, uh, as part of its adaptation. And so uh, that's the other kind of, the flip side of the coin as it were. Mm -hmm. Uh, There there are different things that uh, Buddhists do that contribute something to American culture. Uh, uh, So that's one of the reasons why you, uh, I think uh, some of these ideas that seem Perhaps a little bit different than the pre-existing culture. Um, uh, things that Buddhism can bring around ethics, things that Buddhism brings around, say meditation practice, or uh, uh, or religious art, or whatever it is that's a little bit different and new. That's also part of what the process of, you know, acculturation involves. And so, so it's not surprising to me that there are. Uh, both those aspects happening uh, throughout time and the decades in American Buddhism. And I think one of the things one could say about what makes American Buddhism different from Chinese Buddhism, Japanese, like other forms of Buddhism in the long history of this religious tradition, one could point to two things. One is this kind of sectarian or lineage pluralism. There's no other time in Buddhist life that you can find, you know, you can't find it in Kyoto or Bangkok or uh, Shanghai or uh, 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 Tibet, where you have all these different lineages next to each other Mm. uh, together. Uh, It's probably the most Buddhist, you know, pluralist um, moment, uh, the, the, the development of the last century of American Buddhism. And then the other thing, and this is, I'm sorry, I'm going back to the poem you mentioned earlier uh, called Parting mm-hmm. by Reverend uh, Senzaki, uh, Nyogen Senzaki, uh, Rinzai Zen priest who was writing to his multi-ethnic sangha as he was being put into these camps. He he has this phrase in there. He says, you know, he's talking about having to leave Los Angeles and uh, it's because he's got a Japanese face. And um, But then he says, Uh, wherever he goes, he's talking about himself as a Buddhist priest, he may form other groups inviting friends of all faces, beckoning them with the empty hands of Zen. And so there's something uh, I think very um, powerful about the idea of sanghas in America being constituted of all faces, of people of different uh, type of backgrounds uh, because America is a place that has different people from many different backgrounds. And so I think that's something that's very interesting and exciting that's going on. I know, for example, here where I live in Southern California, uh, many temples like the Orange County Buddhist Church uh, just down the road, I think their membership is now 25% uh, Latinx. Uh, you know, a, a historically Japanese American Buddhist congregation is. Uh, uh, starting to uh, change not only because Japanese Americans are basically, you know, roughly about 50% of Japanese Americans, 1.3 million people are multiracial themselves, but also because um, uh, these uh, congregations or sanghas are, 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 are demographically shifting as well. And so I think we're finding some really interesting things that's never happened before in the history of Buddhism. That's a part of, uh, this adaptation process of, of something called American Buddhism.
0: Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, I've, I've had discussions with other people on this podcast who have sometimes um, qu- questioned the very thing you're talking about as a, as a, as a good sign about the, the non-sectarian or the integration of all the different uh, traditions um, within American Sanghas and not just the different integration of different races and cultures, but uh, traditions seem to mix a lot. And I hear so many people like many teachers who I've had on this uh, podcast, you know, raise an eyebrow and say, well, that dilutes the lineage or dilutes the tradition. And, uh, and then it, it, and it contributes to that, uh, uh, what they, what do they call it? You know, um, a shopping mentality. For, uh, of, try, 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 try. Right. 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 But I, I find some hope in, in that sort of non-sectarian um, availability, which actually, in talking about it what comes to mind right now too is that during this pandemic one thing that i found that's been just a blessing is the plethora of religious services that are now online you, you i have shared uh, jodo shinsu services um, uh, on my everyday buddhism website because they're now online and they didn't used to be online. And most of the people I know, when I try to explain to them what that tradition is about, um, they've never heard of it and they didn't know. And uh, uh, y- and there's just, I find it just, I, I think it's very promising uh, for for Buddhism in America to, to have it all intermixed like that.
1: Right. Well, I think, you know, the idea of, we make the Dharma available and see who resonates. I think uh, we, we, we're generally not a religion that is proselytizing. Um, right. Uh, but, but we try to make ourselves and our teachings available. And and uh, if that means that people are, you know, because it's a, still a primarily non-Buddhist country
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in America, people come at... Uh, different teachers and teachings and lineages and practices um, uh, made available and they find whatever resonates uh, with them. Um, You know, and even if you're born into a Buddhist family, it may be that your familial tradition feels very comfortable and, and uh, wonderful. Uh, But the also wonderful thing about the Buddhist tradition is that, you know, the Buddha, gave many teachings and uh, offered many approaches to enter the gate of the Dharma. And so I think that's, 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 uh, that's helpful. You know, I, I myself, I'm probably, I'm a ritual conservative, you know, (laughs) I I am a conservative when it comes to uh, lineage protection and, and and transmitting the Dharma through particular forms uh, carefully. And, and, uh, uh, but what I, what I do find problematic sometimes is the language of purity. And this, you know, I think it's partly because I'm mixed race myself, you know, part mm-hmm. Japanese and part British uh, uh, in my own background. But I've always found that Buddhism has this wonderful teaching about interconnectedness and about not patrolling purity boundaries, whether it's around race or religion uh, in, in such a, Uh, hard way. Uh, It it has a much more flexible uh, kind of approach to thinking about identity, uh, whether it's of one's race or one's religion. It's a much more flexible approach. And I think that's that's also a part of what would, to me, make American Buddhism feel very um, uh, vibrant and alive.
0: Oh, yeah. Wonderful point. Absolutely. Wonderful point. And, and I do think it's, uh, I like what you said about the, uh, r- ritualistic conservative. That's, that's good. Um, throughout the book, um, and I keep coming back to this, you know, we talked, we touched on this earlier, but I'd like to kind of circle back to it again. Um, uh, you know, the the question keeps coming up throughout the book, what does racial and religious freedom mean in America? And that's so important, I think, for us to reexamine now, um, not just then. So, you know, are we a white only nation, even though we don't advertise that? Are we a Christian nation, even though we claim otherwise? And so I encourage everyone to read Duncan's book, uh, to learn a history they were probably never taught, because these questions... Um, that we have today about that um, are, are really brought to light in, in, in the way Duncan writes about this. Um, you know, it, because it, it forms the, the basic question is like what guarantees religious freedom in America? And, and, and though there are other questions I kept asking that your book kept prompting. And that's the story of fear of the other. The other with different skin color or eye shape. The other with different religious beliefs. You know, there are so many stories and questions highlighted in this amazing book. But for the bulk of today's podcast, the rest of the episode, I wanted to talk to you uh, about the story of faith. Um, The faith that gave the Japanese American Buddhists the strength to carry on and stay committed to both their faith and their loyalty in the U.S., this sort of faith um, is what I think spread the, the the sprouted and spread the seeds of a new American Buddhism, so that they could be, you know, more accepted by the country. So I keep asking, what do we have faith in? Even if we are practicing a uh, practicing Buddhist and feel secure in our Americanism, I I see personally, even before this pandemic, so much desperation, hopelessness, fear, and suspicion in Americans and even American Buddhists today. It's sort of a giving up and a lack of faith in any spiritual or even religious belief Um, and instead a clinging to like refuge and productivity and secularism, which actually might dissipate a bit after this pandemic. But a strong teaching I received from the stories you told of the priests and practitioners in your book is how we can bring our spiritual and religious commitments into everyday life, not necessarily just to make ourselves feel better or meditate better, or be mindful of, be more productive, um, and not decorated in the trappings of cultural Buddhism that shouts, I'm a Buddhist, but how can we do like the priest did in the camps when the Dharma was their refuge? You know, you wrote on... um, Uh, Page 85, I'm going to read a bit of this of of the chapter Camp Dharma. Okay. Um, So, uh, uh, Camp Dharma, you said, stripped of their freedom and of the outward symbols of their faith, Buddhists drew on whatever was available to sustain their faith um, and sustain their faith and freely practice their religion. Imprisonment became an opportunity to discover freedom. So, That's that's so strong, imprisonment became an opportunity to discover freedom, a liberation that the Buddha himself attained only after embarking on a spiritual journey filled with many obstacles and hardships. That journey began when he let go of his comfortable life as a prince in the royal palace of the Shakya clan, into which he was born, and an acknowledgement that unease and suffering were not only part of being alive, but essential to discovering one's own nature and the world's. In Buddhism, the practice of delving into the depths of this world so as to transcend it is sometimes symbolized by the image of a beautiful lotus flower emerging out of muddy waters. The lotus flower represents enlightenment and in sculptural traditions is the seat upon which the Buddha is centered. Muddy water represents delusion and greed or anything that hinders enlightenment and causes suffering. While some traditions of Buddhism center on the need to transcend the muddy water to attain a state of enlightenment, most Japanese Buddhist traditions emphasize that for the lotus flower to exist, the nutrients from the muddy waters are essential. It is a metaphor that emphasizes how the karmic obstacles of the world of this world are interconnected with liberation and enlightenment. For the intern Buddhist priests, incarceration often, often served as muddy water. Their American Sutra was written not in a realm of purity and formality, but in the swamps of Louisiana and the deserts of New Mexico the internment camps became new arenas for deepening religious practice for those whose mission it was to offer valuable Buddhist teachings to America. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, And you actually, I'm linking it to, I'm going to call on you. You actually shared, uh, uh, wrote a piece and shared it um, that you called Solidarity Sutra, which uses this image of a lotus flower as part of your sutra about the challenging times we're living together during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Do you have that close to you now, Duncan, for you to read?
1: Uh, Sure. Yes, I have it with me here. Uh, let me read it. Um, it's called Solidarity Sutra and I wrote it just the other day um, trying to reflect on a Buddhist uh, way to think about where we are uh, today. It's also um, something where I'm, I'm involved in a Japanese-American organization called Tsuru for Solidarity. Tsuru means cranes. And we've been folding paper cranes and placing them on the fences of uh, Uh, ICE detention centers uh, uh, incarcerating those who, uh, migrants seeking asylum uh, in this country. And so I wrote this uh, piece uh, to reflect on the fact that we are all maybe experiencing some level of confinement, some level of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, social, uh, kind of distancing or physical distancing, I should say. And, um, but that, uh, you know, in these facilities not known for their um, humane and medically uh, uh, sophisticated uh, uh, facilities, uh, these migrants who don't have a home, who don't have a, a refuge, uh, I think are most vulnerable to Uh, this COVID-19 virus. And so thinking about those things, I wrote this piece uh, called Solidarity Sutra. Thus, we have heard, at a time when physical distancing is required, yet social solidarity is so needed, the great physician Buddha offers medicine to alleviate the hurts of our world. A net of jewels, each a precious being an infinite mirror to see ourselves. Interlinked is the rising wall of suffering. Interlinked are the efforts to surmount walls. Interlinked, we turn the wheel of the Dharma, turning views to see things clearly, turning hearts to know that we are not alone. Like a lotus flower blossoming above muddy water, drawing nutrients from darkest despair, Discovering freedom in the midst of constraints, solidarity bodhisattvas recite the mantra: Shujo muhen se beings are innumerable; we vow to liberate all. Bonno mujin se delusions are inexhaustible; we vow to eliminate them all. Homo muryo se Dharma gates are boundless. We vow to study them all. Buddha's path is unsurpassable. We vow to actualize it.
0: That's absolutely beautiful, Duncan. And I can't think of a. Uh, uh, it's it's just so appropriate that um, that we have the American Sutra, and then you wrote this for the uh, pandemic. It's just it's just beautiful and offers so much hope and faith. And and I'm hoping that in these challenging times of fear of the other and even more recently fear of the unknown that a virus can have on the world's population, we can find a faith in our Buddhist practice, the sutras, our teachers, and in what's good in our country and in the people of our country and the world, which I think we're seeing a lot of that even in the midst of the fear and, 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 and so forth. I I see the stories of the imprisoned Japanese Americans as beacons of that hope, and you are more intimate in these stories than I am. So, to to sort of end this uh, podcast, what particular stories would you offer as teachings or guidelines to? something to hold on to as buddhist practitioners or non-buddhist practitioners as practicing bodhisattvas or n- not in our times today well
1: since we started with um, hana and the buddha's birthday and since we kind of ended i think you you made reference to um, that image, and it's, it was in the Solidarity Sutra as well, that image of the lotus flower blossoming above muddy water. I'm reminded of one of the Buddhist priests who was arrested uh, right on Pearl Harbor day. And that was you know, December uh, 7th, 1941, that was a Sunday. And so because of the Congregationalism, uh, people were meeting at the temples on Sundays. And one of the Buddhist priests, he was the Bishop of the Jodo tradition in Honolulu, uh, the FBI came for him while whilst in service and uh, whilst he was at the temple and they didn't let him go back home even to pick up, you know, a toothbrush or, you know, change of clothes or anything like that. So he was taken and and uh, incarcerated right away. He was on an FBI watch list. And during the Hanamatsuri or the Buddha's birthday, which, you know, we know, uh, you know, happens usually around April 8th. Uh, Um, so it's in the spring. Um, uh, it's, it's one of the important rituals of the Buddhist uh, tradition. And, uh, you know, because he hadn't been able to go home, he, he was asked to be the officiant and give a Dharma message at, at the Buddhist birthday in April of 1942. And so he gives a talk in which he talks about the fact that he's got these really dirty robes on because he hadn't had a change of clothes since December, um, of early December, 1941. And he makes reference to this classical Buddhist image of the Lotus flower blossoming above muddy water. And he says that usually we think about it as this kind of idea of escaping, transcending, kind of rising up above this muddy world. Uh, represented by the idea of you know, delusion and difficulty and suffering. And the, as Buddhists, we try to rise up above it. But he said, you know what? Look at my dirty robes, these mm-hmm. dusty robes. This is, uh, and this is how we're going to renew our Buddhist faith uh, on the Buddha's birthday, is by recognizing that it's from the nutrients of the mud that the lotus flower can grow. If you put a flower like a lotus flower in pristine or pure water, it has nothing to draw on to grow up and above. And so he gave some encouragement to a people who had been dislocated who had lost everything they worked so hard for. He gave them some encouragement that that is the grist or that is the mud, that is the nutrients we find ourselves in that can actually be the way in which we uh, blossom, way in which we can open up the lotus petals. And so I think that's to me one story that I recall a lot um, in these times as well where people on that very everyday existential uh, level may be feeling unease, maybe feeling uh, difficulty of many different kinds, losing loved ones to this virus, having a friend who works on the front line and medical staff, or even just, you know, having family working at, at the, you know, in, in law enforcement or at the gas station or a grocery clerk, and and fearing what is going to happen to all of them. And that's I think, when, when we need to turn to the this kind of everyday dharma, you know, the, 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 the mm. refuge we mm-hmm. can find in how we see the world, how we act and be in it, how we can change perspective, how we form community. That's the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Uh, that kind of very, how we say, visceral, uh, everyday existential aspect of, of what it means to take refuge. I think that's something that is uh, uh, something that we can, we can draw on our, Buddhist faith in these times as well.
0: Thank you for that wonderful story. I love that story. And I, I love how you, weave, you know, interweaved it with what we're, what we're doing, um, what we're dealing with right now. And, you know, there is, it, it is an interesting time we live in, in that we're so distant, yet there's such a sense of community because the whole world's suffering at the same time. And it's such right. a profound illustration of the interdependence and in, that we talk about in Buddhism. Um, I, it's all, it, it strikes me all the time. And, and at the same time, I think if we can look and see it as the liberation we can find um, from our suffering or in other words the nutrients we can pull from the muddy water the liberation that we can find from our suffering is from this sense of community we have even though we're not together right right yeah Yeah. so that that's uh so duncan thank you so much uh i i can't think of it a more appropriate time to have had you on my podcast and and i appreciate your time and I appreciate your writing this book and I appreciate all the insights you were able to share with me today.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for all you do.
0: Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Everyday Buddhism. Um, Until next time, be safe, take good care, and know that we are truly all in this together.